Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, what's your healthy heart score? Why the answer to that question could make it easier to prevent a range of conditions. Plus, Zika's impact on women, the barriers in many hard-hit countries that could make disease prevention difficult. And some new research highlighting the risks and benefits of alcohol. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Monomiro. Amy, we begin this week with heart health. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. And we know that a healthy lifestyle is key to prevention. That means eating well, exercising, getting enough sleep. We also know that many adults aren't doing those things. But researchers now say an older tool may give doctors a new way to promote healthy behaviors in their patients. That tool is the Healthy Heart Score, developed at the Harvard Chan School two years ago. It measures nine key lifestyle risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as smoking, body mass index, diet, and low levels of physical activity. And it's been shown to effectively predict a person's risk of cardiovascular disease in adulthood. And Amy, a new study from the Harvard Chan School now finds that the healthy heart score can also be used to assess a person's risk of developing conditions such as diabetes, hypertension, or hypercholesteremia, all risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Researchers looked at 70,000 women and found a link between their healthy heart score and those risk factors. We spoke about the new finding with Mercedes Sotos Prieto, a research associate at the Harvard Chan School. Women with the higher predicted CBD risk based on the healthy heart score had significantly greater risk of developing each clinical risk factor individually. That includes an 18-fold higher risk of type 2 diabetes, a 5-fold higher risk of hypertension, and a threefold higher risk of hypercholesterolemia. Sotos Prieto says the findings could prove beneficial to doctors who often have limited time to discuss lifestyle behaviors with their patients. She says that having patients calculate their healthy heart scores may be a good way to initiate these types of conversations. If you want to calculate your own healthy heart score, just visit hsph.me heart. This week, on March 8th, the world marked International Women's Day, calling attention to gender inequality and women's rights issues. And Amy, the ongoing Zika outbreak across Latin America and the Caribbean is highlighting just how severe gender inequality is in many parts of the world. Because it is linked to the birth defect microcephaly, Zika has disproportionately affected women. But women face other barriers that put them at higher risk. In the hardest-hit countries, contraception is incredibly difficult to access, and in many places, abortions are illegal. During a recent webcast hosted by the Forum at the Harvard Chan School, Marcia Castro, an associate professor of demography, described the situation in Brazil, which has been at the epicenter of the Zika outbreak. There is a significant percentage of the pregnancies that are unwanted, and that shows uh, the gap that we have in terms of access to to contraception. And we're talking about Brazil that has all incomes uh, levels have have experienced declining fertility. So, So one barrier is this. You do have a lot of poor women that don't have the adequate access um, to contraception. The second thing is, um, which has, there has been a lot of discussion in Brazil uh, back in January, is that all the campaigns, all the messages were missing the three word, men. It was never in the message. And they're trying to make it a little bit better now, but there was a lot of controversy in the beginning because of that. A new report out this week from Amnesty International estimates that in Latin America and the Caribbean, 97% of women between the ages of 15 and 49 live in countries where access to safe abortion is severely restricted by law. 
New legislation signed by President Obama will ban the import of products made using forced labor. And Noah, that will finally close a loophole that has existed since the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act went into effect in 1930. That gap had allowed companies to import goods made with forced labor if U.S. demand exceeded domestic production. And Amy, it's estimated that more than 20 million people around the world, many of them children, are victims of forced labor, producing hundreds of billions of dollars worth of products each year. We spoke about this issue with Jacqueline Baba, director of research at Harvard's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, and Arlen Fuller, the executive director of the FXB Center and a research associate at the Harvard Chan School. Baba says that closing this loophole will have important implications in the fight against human trafficking and forced labor. This is not just niche industries. This is Walmarts. It's Neiman Marcus. It's Bloomingdale's. It's everywhere where any of us do our shopping. So this change in labor standards will actually have a dramatic impact on imports and it'll have, I presume, an impact on the profitability of not only the retailers, but of course all these middlemen in between. There's a very close connection between the trafficking of people for exploitation and the demand for goods. And you could say the same about sex. I mean, if there was no demand for 12-year-old girls or 12-year-old virgins, then a whole chunk of the sex trafficking industry would just collapse, right? Or if there was a way of ensuring that people who had paid for sex with children were prosecuted and that there was no tolerance, zero tolerance of that, then we would see a big decline in the numbers. So supply and demand go together. Fuller adds that while we know the problem is widespread, it can often be difficult to figure out exactly when forced labor was used during the production process. So it's not only just looking at what the final product is. It's looking at all of the materials that are gathered and created for the production of those, those goods. So when you're talking about electronics that rely on batteries that use minerals that have been mined by children in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or you're talking about clothes that rely on cotton that's been picked by children in Uzbekistan, there's a wide array of, of what we're talking about and how forced labor plays a role in all of the goods that we use in the U.S. And that's a large part of what we're doing at the FXB Center is looking at the full supply chain and trying to identify where these tainted goods, tainted products, tainted materials actually find their way into the flow to the United States and to Europe and, and abroad. The FXB Center recently completed a comprehensive report that documented the use of forced and child labor in the production of handmade carpets in India. Many of those carpets are sold by major U.S. retailers. You can read that full report on their website by visiting hsph.me slash carpets. Taking aspirin regularly may reduce your cancer risk. That's according to a new study from Mass General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and the Harvard Chan School. The researchers analyzed data from almost 136,000 participants in two long-running studies. They found that regular aspirin users, people who took a standard or low-dose aspirin twice a week, had a 3% lower risk of overall cancer. The aspirin appeared most effective at reducing rates of colon cancer and other gastrointestinal cancers. No reduction was seen in the risk of breast, prostate, or lung cancer. And Amy, researchers do caution that taking aspirin should not be a substitute for regular cancer screenings. You're also urged to consult with your doctor because there may be side effects associated with regular aspirin treatment. (music) 
A new study is shedding light on both the short-term and long-term effects of alcohol. Noah, the research from the Harvard Chan School and Brigham and Women's Hospital finds that heart attack and stroke risk may increase shortly after someone has an alcoholic drink, but that same beverage may protect against the same problems over the long term. Amy, researchers say that after we have a drink, our blood pressure rises and our blood platelets, which are essential for clotting, become stickier, which increases heart attack and stroke risk. But over the long term, moderate drinking appears to increase levels of HDL, or good cholesterol, which may reduce clotting. The study's lead author, Elizabeth Mostowski, does caution that heavy drinking is never a good idea, pointing out that there is evidence that heavy drinking raises a person's risk of heart attack and stroke in both the long and short term. If you're wondering, moderate drinking is defined as up to one drink a day for the average size woman and two drinks for the average man. Heavy drinking is more than four drinks a day for the average woman, or eight in a week, and five drinks a day, or 15 in a week for the average man. Finally in this episode, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, turned six this month. That's right, Amy. Six years ago in March of 2010, President Obama signed the Affordable Care Act into law. And the administration says the health care laws helped 20 million Americans gain coverage. But the ACA has also been a political lightning rod, especially in the 2016 presidential campaign. We asked John McDonough, professor of the practice of public health at the Harvard Chan School, to provide an update on the ACA's successes, its economic impact, and its future. Well, the key success has been the reduction in the number of uninsured Americans from just under 50 million down to an estimated now about 29 million. So we've seen a significant increase in the tens of millions of people who have health insurance and we've gotten the rate of uninsurance down to the lowest rate since we've been counting. Uh, the other big piece is that we are seeing a significant transformation in medical care delivery in the United States. It's going in some ways very slowly in other ways at breakneck speed. But we are moving our system away from a system that rewards medical providers for how much they do. And we are now increasingly more and more day by day reimbursing providers based upon the value and the quality and the outcomes for the services that they provide. And that is a major transformation in our healthcare system that's going to be increasingly important in years ahead. And at some point, we'll probably even overshadow the coverage parts of the law. The future of the ACA depends on what happens on November 8th. I had thought, once we got past 2014, that all of the major existential threats to the ACA were over, and I was wrong. There's one more, and it's on November 8th. If Republicans win the White House and hold on to the Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives, then I believe there will be some significant and substantial dismantling of major parts of the law, including coverage, which could lead to a loss of insurance coverage for potentially tens of millions of Americans. The Congressional Budget Office said that the recently passed legislation that the Republican Congress sent to the President Obama that he vetoed would have taken coverage away from 22 million Americans. So big consequences. If Democrats hold on to the White House and or the U.S. Senate, then I believe they will be able to effectively block that kind of substantial dismantling. So the consequences for the ACA from the November 8th national elections are momentous. 
And that was John McDonough talking about the Affordable Care Act, and he weighed in on a range of issues related to Obamacare. And you can hear more from him by visiting hsph.me slash multimedia. That's all for Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Monomiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. You can listen to this podcast anytime by visiting our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash harvardpublichealth, or visit hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth to learn how you can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. <laughs>